Welcome to Crossroads of Culture and Christianity. I am your host, Jacob Jellison, joined as always by my co-host, Aaron Hove. Today, we want to continue our discussion that we started before our episode last week. Last week, we discussed our thoughts on the Asbury Revival, but before that, we were talking about moral relativism, what it, what it was, why it matters to us. This week, we want to take some time and kind of go a little further on that topic and discuss do people that claim to be moral relativists really live that way? And, and even further than that, can it be lived out in its purest form? There are people that claim moral relativism. They claim that morals are only relative to the situation or to themselves. And we want to kind of examine that thought process and examine those claims and see if they're really even able to be lived out in their purest form. It it doesn't seem like that is the case, but we want to dive into that and talk about that for a few minutes today. One thing I would say, Brother Jellison, about the idea of moral relativism being able to be lived out in its purest form, the very view and idea that morals are somehow relative to one's tastes and preferences, the very idea that that is the case, that in and of itself is a moral view, and even we might say a view about morality. And so the very approach that says, well, morals are relative to the individual at least says that that truth about morals is not relative to the individual. So there's still something about morality. And again, if that view itself were relative to the individual, then we'd have a confused mess of well, moral relativism, and then absolutism could be true, and you'd have all kinds of things that would be true and not true at the same time and be contradictory. Right. And so that very view, yeah. even even while it tries to say morals themselves are relative to the individual, your moral truth may be different from my moral truth, it still, in its self-proclamation, it still claims that there's something about morals, about morality, that's true for everybody across the board. And that is this, that morals and morality, it's relative. And so you still got something objective here tied to morality. But nonetheless, that's beyond the scope of this conversation, because we're focusing on the impracticality and maybe the impossibility of living like a moral relativist. For instance, I'll just throw this one out there. Here's an example of how almost impossible it is to live as a moral relativist purely. And that is this. Anytime someone is done wrong, they always, it seems, respond in a way that reveals some type of absolutist mentality about right and wrong. It's when, right. when they're, they themselves are wronged, you know, when, when there's no wrongdoing done toward them, it's easy to throw things out there. I'm a moral relativist, moral truths. It just depends on who you are, your preferences, your tastes, but let them be wronged in some way. And all of a sudden, they betray their truest feelings and thoughts about morality when they start saying things like, they shouldn't have done that. You can't do that to me. That's not right. They betray their deeper sense that morality really isn't relative. They've been done genuinely wrong. 
and the individual who did this to them genuinely wrongly has committed some moral wrong or misdeed. And so it's they betray this inner view that they the real view that they have about morality. And that is that it does seem to be binding upon everybody in an objective sense. Yeah. So would you say, too, this is in a nutshell what you're saying, but as far as moral relativism goes, basically what moral moral relativism does is it just kind of gives you the ability to dictate what you think is right and wrong and how you conduct yourself. But it does not dictate or doesn't allow you to dictate, I should say, what is done to you. Would that be a fair way to put that? Yes, I think so. I mean, moral relativism, it's the idea that each person has their own moral truth. So I could have my moral truth about how my behavior ought to be. But if you have your moral truth about how your behavior ought to be, and then we're persons who interact with each other, if moral relativism is true, I don't get to ever look at you and say, how dare you do that? Exactly. So I never would get to actually impose my moral views on you. And when the moral relativist is wronged and says, how dare you do that? And critiques and judges you for how you dealt with them, they betray more of an absolutist approach to morality. The idea that there's actually objective right and wrong, and it matters how all of us behave. And there's a standard beyond us. And you have somehow fallen short of that standard in how you've dealt with them. Yeah. And that's the problem, too, is because at this point. Now you have, if you have two people that are claiming to be moral relativists, so they they basically are sovereign over their own lives and choices and things like that. Well, now you have a, like you said, a contradiction, or you have basically a clash of two systems of values. So my system of values may not mirror yours. And so because there is no set standard that is higher than either one of those, there's no hierarchy of values or a set of sta- a standard by which to measure those that's higher than just you and I, then now there's really no way to settle those conflicts either. Right. And that's why we're talking on the individual level right now. But that's why, for instance, and I think our last episode, we talked about this topic. We mentioned even the, the case in the legal historical perspective where they had to deal with Nazi Germany and deal with war crimes and things of that nature. And that was one of the things they had to wrestle with was the fact that other cultures and countries cannot try these individuals from Nazi Germany. We can't in a courtroom try them unless there's a law that's higher than the law of Nazi Germany. And so in order for various countries to judge one another and try one another, you know, on an international level, the only way that can be possible is if there's a law that's higher than all the individual laws of those nations. That's basically what we're saying here as well. The same is true here in that on individual level, the only way that you and I can judge one another is if there's some law higher than us. And that's what the moral relativist falls into when he's judging another and he's been wronged and he points the finger and says, how dare you treat me that way? He's betraying the fact that he actually believes there's a law above himself. And so he he has a yeah. lot a really hard time living out his moral relativism on a practical day-to-day level. It's just almost impossible. Uh, I would also say, let's turn the tables. So suppose we have two moral relativists in the same room and one of them has done the other one wrong. Moral relativist A does moral relativist B wrong in some way. Moral relativist B 
points the finger at moral relativist A and says, how dare you? Betraying the fact that he actually believes there is a standard of behavior, a moral law, a moral code that's above both of them. Moral relativist A, in responding to the finger in his face of moral relativist B, moral relativist A says, well, there was a reason why I did things the way I did them. Here's the reason why I behaved in this manner and the reason why it's justified. And he tries to justify his own behavior. If you listen around to conversations, anytime someone's, I have yet to see this happen anyway, but anytime someone is accused of wrong behavior, they almost never respond like a moral relativist. If they were a true moral relativist at heart and they were accused of wrong behavior, their response ought to be something like a shrug of the shoulders and just kind of, so, you know, that's their attitude because their moral truth, they maybe they lived in line with their moral truth and nobody else's moral truth really affects theirs. And so whenever, yeah. whenever moral relativist B pointed the finger and said, how dare you, moral relativist A, instead of shrugging his shoulders and saying, so what? Instead, he often begins to give a reason why he behaved the way he did and why it was proper for him to behave that way. And so on both sides of the equation, whether you're the one done wrong or whether you're the one who's been accused of wrongdoing, humans across the board, we tend to act as though whether we're accusing, we're acting as though there's actually a higher objective moral law, or whether we try to justify our behavior and show how, see, it really wasn't wrong. It was actually okay. And it was justified. In either case, we're showing and betraying this idea that somehow there's a, a standard, a moral standard that's above both of us right now. And so yeah. I, Again, in our day-to-day living and interacting with each other, it's nearly impossible to live like a moral relativist. Right. And I think that that point that you just made kind of leads us into our next point about why it's impossible to live like a moral relativist in the sense that when someone is accused of wrongdoing, they must offer a reason why it's acceptable and proper for them to say that they've been done wrong, or they offer a reason why it's acceptable and proper for them to commit whatever action they carried out either way. You know, so if, if you are claiming that you've been done wrong, then you have to offer an explanation or reason as to why that you've been done wrong. Or on the flip side of that, if you carried out an action that might be considered wrong, you have to be able to justify it in some way. And so in that sense, you know, if you feel like you have been, I'll, I'll just, I'll go from this angle. If I feel like as a more relativist, if I feel like you have done me wrong, well, then I have to be able to offer something more than just, well, because I just feel that way. You know, it's that really doesn't settle anything. I have to be able to offer a reason as to why that I have been done wrong or why what you have done is is something wrong. And, and that's where the more relativist really doesn't have a, a leg to stand on because there is no reasoning behind that other than just mere claims of feeling or emotivism or something along those lines. Right. Another area we could look at to see how almost impossible it is to live like a moral relativist would be the political sphere. And when you go into the political realm, look at politics of today, you don't have to look very far to realize, and it really doesn't matter what level you want to look at, whether you want to look at 
politicians themselves and how they interact with one another, or whether you want to look at people on the street level who are uh, supporting, advocating for certain political perspectives, or even voting politicians into office. Really doesn't matter what level you look at when it comes to politics. When's the last time you heard Democrats and Republicans disagreeing on some particular political position and both sides just kind of shrugged their shoulder or even one side shrugged their shoulders and just said, "Eh, that's your political truth. That's fine for you all, but this is our political truth. We don't do that. There's stout disagreement from both sides. And I mean, we argue and we debate and we try to pass bills and we try to make it go the way we think it ought to be. And there's none of this just shrugging the shoulders and saying, that's y'all's moral truth. This is ours. You know, if moral relativism, if it's really true that morals are relative to personal tastes and preferences, then when it comes to the political realm. Why don't we ever in discussions and we could, you know, name even some of the discussions where there's disagreements in the political spectrum. Let's talk about gun rights. Let's talk about gun laws and and tightening down on those laws. You never hear from either side. You never hear something like them just shrugging the shoulders and saying, oh, well, that's fine for you. And this will be fine for us. You know, both sides are trying to make it. You know, the way they see it, how they think it ought to be, make it that way across the board, Uh, whether it's tightening down on gun laws or whether it's protecting and defending gun rights, whatever it is, both sides act like when it comes to what's right and wrong, this thing is objective. It's above all of us. It should apply to all of us. And in the political spectrum, we don't act like morals are relative to personal preference or taste. Well, you, you can do the same thing with abortion laws, pro-life pushes in, in the political spectrum. It's the same way. If you want to look at marriage and those that would push for homosexual rights, those that would push for you know marriage being defined as between one man, one woman, on all sides, when it comes to the political spectrum, I've not found anybody out there that argues their political view from an approach of just kind of nonchalance and shrugging the shoulders and, oh, well, this is my political moral truth, and that's yours. That's fine. Everybody wants to push across the board for their view because that's what they think it ought to be like. Yeah, if you were to try to take that approach to your values that you're trying to push, where it's just, well, this is just my moral truth, you might have you know several followers that will accept that. But by and large, if you're trying to convince the majority of the population, they're just they're they're not going to accept that as a valid reasoning behind implementing those laws. That's true. And okay, play on that word. And maybe you've hit something there. You use the word convince. Why are we trying to convince if moral truth is just totally relative? Exactly. There's no place for convincing, no place for debate. It, It just if we're really, truly moral relativists. There's no room for that kind of stuff. And that's why that's kind of what that word convince is good. And and that's sort of what I'm hitting at in this point on the political spectrum. The very idea that we're trying to convince one another, this is the way it ought to be. 
doesn't fit yeah. within a moral relativistic framework. No, because if morals are just relative to one person or another, then then trying to convince somebody that their morals are wrong or that our morals are dominant and right is, is never going to work. It, it, it doesn't fit that worldview. Right. And even if you were to say, and you can extend it out, whether from the individual level to, you know, the, the community level, one community couldn't look at another community and say, no, you can't do it that way, you know, or one state look at another state and say, you can't do it that way. Uh, I mean, and yet we do this all the time in the political spectrum. We just do. That's right. Another thing, and you mentioned this to me right before we came on, Brother Jellison, but that's this. We live like there are these universal objective values that they just are there. They're objective right. universal values. And and I think the one you mentioned was the idea of the value of persons. Well, with with the the idea that there's a value upon persons, there's some sense in which that goes against the grain of moral relativism. Because all of a sudden, if humans are objectively universally valuable if if that's a truth that's a moral truth and if we live as though that's the truth we betray a moral relativistic framework we we go against that uh, and yeah. everybody it seems lives in their day-to-day -day life as though somehow that is true that humans actually human beings actually have great value we may be wrong in some of our applications of it because we don't all apply it the same way. But nonetheless, there's this common conception that human beings have value. And the moment you, even if it's not to the individual that points the finger, you know, like we said in our illustration of moral relativist A and moral relativist B, even if it's not them individually being wronged, the moment you or I do something to another human being or say something demeaning or derogatory to another human being, all of a sudden, everybody bristles and points the finger and how dare you? How could you say that to them? How could you treat them that way? Right. And we betray this idea that there is somehow an objective universal value about human beings. And another one I'd suggest is the idea of freedom. And, and we could throw in several different things here, but there's a common idea that freedom is somehow universally, objectively valuable. It's not just one individual's truth. You know, well, this is my reality. This is my moral truth. Freedom is valuable. From all sides, we argue on the importance of freedom. Yeah. We could talk about, and I'll just mention this as one illustration, on the abortion issue that we talked about not too terribly long ago. Both sides are going to argue that freedom's important. Those on the pro-life side are going to argue that the right to life of the unborn is important and we cannot, we cannot cross over and do away with the right to life that the unborn have. And there's, so there's something to the idea of freedom being important that plays into that argument. By the same token, those on the other side are going to argue things like, well, how dare you tell me what I can or can't do with my body? And they betray the idea that somehow freedom is really, really important. Now, granted, again, we're not applying it the same way. And there are other details in that discussion that need to be 
played out and come to a better understanding of. And we probably in a broader discussion would need to do things like define what exactly is freedom and delineate the purpose of freedom. What is the purpose of it? We'd need to lay out some of those kind of things. But nonetheless, both sides are admitting freedom is somehow universally, objectively valuable. And they betray the idea, they go against the idea that moral relativism is true, that they do not live as though it's true. Yeah, that's true. That was one of the points, just to kind of further what you were saying earlier about us living as if people have value. One of the points I was listening to a professor talk and he made this point and I thought it was good, but he said, we live as though we have value. We, nobody devalues themselves or treats themselves as if they have no value at all. I mean, there are, there may be some exceptions to that, obviously, but for the most part, that's just generally not the case. Not only that, but we treat other people like they have value for, I mean, if you didn't, then you'd be lying to them, cheating on them. I mean, there are several different things. And in turn, you're going to be hated. Well, he made that point. And my thought process is if those things are just relative, why would people hate you for that? But they do. They would hate you if you were, I mean, it's in our society, even among people that are moral relativists, if you get a reputation as being a cheat or a liar or somebody that's dishonest in their business dealings or things like that, even the moral relativists are going to avoid you because they recognize that there is something negative about that that reputation. You know, they don't want to be done that way. Well, why? Why does it matter if that's the case? If again, if morals are just relative, then why does it matter if I'm known as a liar or a cheat? It, it, that, that's my way of doing things. I'm, you know, those are my values that I want to adhere to. So why does it matter to you? Well, you know, they're, they're going to despise those type of people. They're going to avoid those type of people. And it's obvious the reason why is because there's something just seemingly, at least objectively wrong with being known as those kinds of things. Right. It just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work as a way of living our lives. And that brings us back to where we were last time we had this discussion. And I think one of the points we made was the fact that the Bible, nowhere, nowhere in scripture does it take a moral relativistic view and approach. Go to Exodus in the law and and read, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Go to Matthew 5 and read how Christ expects his disciples to live. Go to Galatians 5 and read how those who are have been born of the Spirit, those who have the fruits of the Spirit and are walking in the Spirit, read how, how they're expected to live. Over and over, the Bible tells us how to live. And if moral relativism isn't true, and there's a law above you and me, I need to find that law and that standard. It's found in the Word of God. That's why it's so important to know what this Word says not just know, but embrace it in our lifestyle. When this book tells me how I ought to speak, I want my words to be shaped by what this book tells me. When it tells me how I ought to treat my fellow man, I, I want to embrace that and live it out. When it tells me how I ought to dress in my clothing and how I ought to live in my behavior and conduct in the world, I want to embrace it with all of my heart and live exactly what this book teaches because that's going to affect how the author of this book views me in my life. Thank you so much for listening. If you would, 
leave us a comment on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. It really helps us get a get the word out there. Leave us a rating. If you'd like to reach us, you can contact us at askthecrossroads at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.